Thanks for listening to the Rock Hill Podcast. At Rock Hill, we're all about reaching people with the life-giving and life-changing message of Jesus. Listen in as Pastor Matt Chappell teaches how God's Word applies to our everyday lives. And uh, we are in a series that we have entitled Surrounded by Struggle. And uh, we've been talking about how can we find strength in the midst of our struggle. And uh, when life throws uh, us curveballs and the unexpected happens and we're going through a trial, a difficulty, a struggle, how can we find strength and stability in the midst of that struggle? And uh, we've, we've talked about in the first week how we can have confidence even in the midst of chaos. We learned from John chapter number nine about the blind man uh, who found confidence even in the midst of that difficulty, in the midst of that struggle. And last week, we talked about how to get victory uh, over anxiety and over worry and uh, from Matthew chapter number six. And if you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to jump on the podcast. You can just type in uh, Rock Hill Church or go on our website and find the podcast there. And I wanna encourage you to listen to that message. I believe that it could be an encouragement to you and how to find victory and how to find strength when you're struggling with anxiety. And this morning, I wanna preach the third installment of this series. And the title of my message this morning is just very simply, the heart of Jesus. And I want to talk for a few minutes this morning on the heart of Jesus, because I believe that when we have a proper perspective on the heart of Jesus, it will completely transform the way that we view our struggle. And if there's anyone that knew how to get strength in the midst of struggle, it was Jesus. If there was anyone that can relate to us when it comes to our struggle, it was Jesus. The Bible says in Hebrews that we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. And what that verse means is that our high priest, Jesus, he knows what we're going through. He's struggled. He's felt the pain that you feel. He, he, he's, he's endured the difficulty uh, that we have endured. And so if anybody can teach us about how to find strength in the midst of the struggle, it's Jesus. And we're going to look at John chapter number five this morning. If you have a Bible, John chapter five is where we're going to be. And uh, we'll start reading this morning in verse number one. If you're there, would you say amen? Amen. Verse number one. The Bible says this, And after this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude... (coughs) excuse me, a great multitude of impotent folk of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water, whosoever then first after the troubling of the water stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. And a certain man was there, which had an infirmity 30 and eight years. When Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, wilt thou be made whole? The impotent man answered, him, sir, I, I have no man. When the water is troubled to put me in, into the pool, but while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed and walk. And immediately, everybody say immediately. And immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and he walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. Let's have a word of prayer together this morning. Father, thank you so much for this day that you've given us, and God, thank you so much for the time of worship that we've had today, and God, I just pray that for the next few minutes, we'll be able to focus on your word today. God, I pray that we can uh, have a spirit of understanding. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would illuminate this text and, and uh, clearly show us what it is you, you would have for us today. Lord, I pray that we would understand the meaning behind this. God, I pray that we can uh, leave this room encouraged. God, I pray that we would understand your heart today. 
I pray that we can have an understanding of your heart that would lead to a proper understanding of why we go through struggles. And uh, in so doing, we can find strength in the midst of our struggle. We love you. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Amen. How many of you have ever felt misunderstood? And I see your hand, you felt like you were misunderstood. Uh, recently, uh, recently uh, I was FaceTiming with my wife, my mother-in-law, and uh, we were kind of talking to her. And uh, she had some people over at her house, and there was somebody that walked uh, behind her. And Katie said, who is that? And she said, uh, that, that's a girl named Abby. And as soon as my mother-in-law said that, my daughter, four-year-old daughter, Liv, she, she kind of piped up and she said, Abby. She said, let me see Abby. And uh, we looked at Liv and we said, Liv, you have no idea who Abby is. Why, why do you want to, you've never met this person. You don't know who that is. Why do you want to see her? And, and she looked at us and she said, no, Abby is my best friend. Let, let me see Abby. And we were like, what, what are you talking about? And we looked at her and we said, Liv, you have no idea who this is. This is someone that you don't know. And Liv looked at us kind of with a little bit of feistiness about herself and said, you don't know about me. And I looked at her and I said, excuse me, I know everything about you. I made you, girl, you know. And, uh, and so now, uh, now whenever uh, I get into a little tiff with Katie sometimes or a little argument, I just look at her and say, you don't know about me, you know, and uh, it doesn't work out in my favor. But I think we all know that in our relationships in life, there are, there are people that know about us, but that they, they don't really know us. You know what I mean? There are people that know about us, but they don't, they don't really know us. Maybe they, you have some information about someone, but you don't really know someone. And uh, kind of on a superficial level, on a shallow level, you know a little bit about them. Um, on the other hand, we have some people in our lives that we maybe know on a more intimate level. We know them personally. Maybe you've been to their home. You, you kind of know how they think. You, uh, you know what they like to do. And maybe you would even say, I know their heart. And when we say uh, that about someone, when we say, I know their heart, what we're saying is we know why they like to do what they do. We know why they uh, think the way that they think, and we really understand them. We know their heart, and I think it's very easy for us to know about someone, but it takes much more time and intentionality to know someone's heart. Are you tracking with me this morning? It takes more intentionality to know someone's heart, and I believe that we are living in a generation of Christianity where people are, are, are learning and accumulating facts about Jesus, all the while misunderstanding understanding the very heart of Jesus. And we know some things about Jesus, and we maybe know some stories, and we're familiar with a little bit about it, but we don't really know his heart. And this morning, I want to talk for a few minutes about the heart of Jesus and how we can know the heart of Jesus, because when we uh, seek to know God, when we seek to know him, I believe it will radically transform the way that we view our struggle. Paul said this in the book of Philippians chapter 3, verse number 10. He said, that I may know him. Everybody say no. Paul said, I just want to know God. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Paul said, that's my goal in life. That's my desire to really know God, not just to know about him, but to really know his heart and to understand God. Peter said this in 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. And so the question this morning is not, does Jesus know us? Not, does Jesus know about us? The Bible tells us that Jesus knows the very uh, number of hairs on our head. He knows everything about us. But the question is, do we really know Jesus? Do we understand some facts about Jesus and know about him, or do we really understand his heart? The Bible says this in Matthew chapter 11, verse number 29, Jesus is speaking, and he says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Everybody say, learn of me. Jesus says, learn of me, learn my ways, learn my heart, for, for I am meek and lowly in heart, 
and ye shall find rest unto your souls. And so Jesus says, hey, learn about me, learn, learn of my heart, uh, learn of me, learn about me, know who I am, know my heart, and as a result, you will experience rest. And so this morning, I would just like to say to you, if you're going through a struggle, if you are surrounded by a difficulty, if you're going through a storm, uh, a season, maybe you're struggling with stability, I would encourage you to seek after and get to know the heart of Jesus, because when you get to know the heart of Jesus, you will experience the hope that Jesus has to offer. Jesus says, learn of me, know of my heart, and I will give you rest. And so this morning, if you are desiring, if you're longing after rest, seek after and know the heart of Jesus. And we come to John chapter number five this morning, and the book of John uh, was written in about 85 AD. And uh, by the time uh, the book of John was written, the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels, they were already well circulated. And so as a result, uh, much of the book of John is unique to John. He didn't repeat some of the same uh, stories and accounts that were in those other gospels. In fact, 90% of the book of John is unique to John. And that is true of uh, John chapter number five, our story today. It's not found in any of the other gospels. And in this uh, account, Jesus has an interaction and an encounter with this man. And through this uh, encounter, we learn about the heart of Jesus. We learn uh, about how Jesus operates, and we get to know him on a personal level and why he does what he does. And so this morning, I want to learn three characteristics from John chapter number five about the heart of Jesus, three characteristics about his heart. Are you ready this morning? Number one, the heart of Jesus is to be near those that suffer. Notice verse number one. The Bible says this, and after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, according to Deuteronomy, there was three feasts that the Jewish people would participate in. There was the feast of the Passover, the feast of the Pentecost, and the feast of Tabernacles. And we're not really sure which one this is in John chapter number five, but it doesn't really matter because if it was a Jewish feast, we, we know that Jesus would have attended. It was a legally bounding agreement that if you were in a 15-mile radius of Jerusalem at this time, you would have to attend these feasts. And so we know that Jesus would have uh, been in attendance, which is interesting because the priests and the people that were running these feasts, they were apostate. They were considered an abomination. They were wicked men. But Jesus said, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and do what's right, uh, even if everyone around me is not doing right. And even if they have wrong motives, I'm going to go ahead and do what I'm supposed to do. And we see this great example in Jesus. He says, even though these people are uh, struggling in this wickedness, I'm still going to do what God wants me to do. And he was giving us the example to do what's right, no matter what everybody else around us is doing. And so uh, Jesus, he, he attends this feast and he uh, goes up to Jerusalem. Notice verse number two. Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market or the sheep gate, a pool which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, uh, having five porches. Several years ago, uh, Katie and I, we visited Israel and we visited a place in Jerusalem called St. Anne's Church. And when you go to St. Anne's Church, you can actually see uh, the excavation of the pools at Bethesda. I believe that we have a picture this morning. Uh, these are the excavations of the pool at Bethesda. This was a place where uh, many people would go, uh, many sick people would go. And this is where, uh, this is where Jesus uh, makes his way to. Interestingly, the word Bethesda, most commentators generally agree that this means house of mercy. And so Jesus makes his way to the house of mercy. He makes his way to uh, Bethesda. And we learn that there are uh, different types of people uh, that are there at Bethesda. The first group of people that we see is, is uh, hurting people. Notice verse number three. 
in these lay a great multitude. Okay, so a lot of people, a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. And so in this uh, scene at Bethesda, there are all kinds of diseased people. Uh, Commentators say there would have been uh, lepers and crippled people and deaf people and blind people and uh, all kinds of uh, paralyzed people. This was uh, a chaotic scene filled with people that were struggling. In all honesty, this would have been a pretty gross place because many people that were there were crippled, they were paralyzed, they couldn't move, and so if they needed to use the restroom, they would just kind of go right where they were, and so it became very smelly, it became very uh, kind of chaotic and just kind of crowded, and uh, this was the scene that Jesus entered into. Now, uh, this is probably not a type of place that you and I would like to go and kind of just be in, right? Like anytime I go to the hospital, uh, if I'm making a hospital visit, I always want to keep my eye out for those uh, hand sanitizing stations. How many of you know what I'm talking about, right? Like, Got to make sure I find those 99.9% of germs. You know, they can never figure out that 0.1%. I believe that one day we'll, we'll get to 100%. But uh, nonetheless, uh, you know, I'm always looking for those hand sanitizing stations. But, you know, at Bethesda, there is no hand sanitizing stations. Uh, this, is a, this is a gross place. This is a place of pandemonium, of disarray. This is a chaotic scene. And, you know, I've seen some paintings that, that people will paint of Bethesda. And it's kind of like, you know, four guys. And it looks like they're kind of chilling in a hot tub. And they're just kind of relaxing right there. And I'm like, that's, that's not Bethesda, okay? It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a crowded scene. It's a great multitude of all of these sick people. And that's exactly where Jesus goes. Out of all the places that Jesus could have gone to in Jerusalem, out of all the places that he could have gone and taught and ministered and gone to, he says, you know what? I'm going to go to where the hurting people are. I'm going to go to Bethesda. Why? Because that's the heart of Jesus. The heart of Jesus says, I want to be near those that suffer. And I want to encourage you today that if you're suffering, if you're going through a struggle, if you're going through a difficult season, just know this, God is nigh to those that are of a broken spirit, that God wants to be close to you, that he is not very far from you. And so Jesus makes his way into this scene. The Bible says this in Psalm 86, verse number 15, but thou, O Lord, art full of of compassion. Everybody say full. He is full of compassion. Nine times in the Gospels that says that Jesus was moved with compassion. Why was Jesus full of compassion? Why did Jesus get moved with compassion? I'll tell you why. Jesus is compassion. God is love. He is compassion. He, he, he loves people and he makes his way to those that are hurting. Psalm 34 verse number 18 says this, the Lord is nigh. Everybody say nigh. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken spirit, a broken heart, and save as such as a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. He keepeth all his bones. Watch this. Not one of them is broken. And I want to encourage you today that if you're a child of God, you might be bruised, but you will not be broken. You might get knocked down, but you will not be destroyed. You might be going through a struggle, but you will never be alone because it's the heart of Jesus to be near those that suffer. He says, I'm going to make my way to Bethesda, to this chaotic, gross place. That's where I'm going to go. These people were hurting. Our world is filled today with hurting people, people that are struggling with health, people that are struggling with anxiety, people that are struggling with uh, a pain and illness and all kinds of infirmities. And today, Jesus is the hope for hurting people and the hope for hurting hearts. And so we see these people were hurting, but really they were also very hopeless because notice what the next verse says, verse number four. Now, 
Some of the uh, manuscripts omit verse number four. They believe that a scribe added this uh, additionally later to kind of provide context for the story. But if you take out verse number four, verse number seven doesn't really make sense. And, and, and I'll explain this in a minute, but this is what it says. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first after the troubling of the water stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. And so most people believe that this was kind of a superstitious belief that was going on. Some, uh, somebody kind of uh, circulated this story, perhaps maybe a, a Pharisee or someone that said anytime the water stirs, there's going to be healing properties that are in this water. And they believed that whosoever, uh, the first person to get into that water would have been made uh, whole of whatsoever disease he had. Now think about that for a minute, because that would have really just added to the chaos of the scene. You know, if they believe that, you know, if I can get, get in there first, then I'm going to be healed. And so you can imagine anytime that water started to stir a little bit, you have these people, these sick people just kind of throwing themselves into the water. And you have all these paralyzed people kind of flopping around in the water. How would you like to be the lifeguard on duty at the pool at Bethesda? That would be quite chaotic. You have all these people just jumping in. And so it sounds, oh, this is nice. It sounds good. But in all actuality, this was a very insufficient solution. Because people were thinking, maybe one day I'll get in first. Maybe one day it'll be my turn. Maybe one day someone will help me. Maybe one day when the water is stirred, I can be the first one in. And I believe that so many people today in our world are clinging to insufficient solutions. And they're thinking, maybe one day I'll be able to turn this around. And maybe one day it'll be my lucky break. You know, sometimes I go to the gas station and there'll be someone in front of me and they're buying a lottery ticket. And that's kind of the mindset is maybe one day I'm going to get my lucky break. And maybe, maybe one day I'm going to hit it big. I'm going to get the jackpot and all my worries are going to be gone. And that is where people are clinging to and they're just hoping to insufficient solutions. Maybe one day I'll get a raise, and maybe one day I'll get that promotion, and if I can just hit this number in my retirement account, and if I can just get there, and if my business can just get here, and if I can have that relationship, or if I can have that house. But I want to tell you, all those things are going to be insufficient. They're not going to provide true fulfillment and satisfaction in life, and I love what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse number 9, and he said unto me, my grace is sufficient. Everybody say Sufficient. He says, my grace is sufficient. The Greek word is archaeo. It means enough. He says, my grace is enough. Can I just challenge you this morning and encourage you that Jesus is all you need. He is enough. His grace is sufficient. He provides everything in him, pertains all things to life and godliness. We don't need some new profound thing. No, we just need Jesus. We need to be surrounded in a context of believers, in a context of community, and follow a biblical worldview and say, Jesus, I want to know you. I want to know your heart. 2 Peter 1.3, according as his divine power hath given us all things, all things that pertain unto life and godliness. He's given us everything that we need. Christ is enough. And we have to be reminded this morning as the church that, that when we consider people that are hopeless and people that are hurting, that we have uh, the hope. We have the answer. We, we have the sufficient solution. His name is Jesus Christ. And it's our job to declare unto our community and to declare unto our city that Jesus is the answer. The Bible says this in Romans 15, 13. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that ye may abound in hope. Abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. And so what do we learn about the heart of Jesus through these first few verses? The heart of Jesus is to be near those that suffer. And so this morning, if you're struggling, let me just encourage you that God is not very far away. Sometimes we think, man, God's not interested. Where is he at? You know, what's going on? But the Bible says in Acts 17 that he is not very far from any one of us. You draw nigh to God, he will draw nigh to you. And so, so, so Jesus is, uh, it's his heart to be near those that suffer. But notice the second characteristic of the heart of Jesus that we learned this morning. Number two, the heart of Jesus is to do the miraculous. 
the heart of Jesus is to do the miraculous. Notice verse number five. And a certain man was there, which had an infirmity 30 and eight years. And uh, so we're introduced to this man in our text who uh, has this infirmity. He was crippled uh, 38 years, longer than Jesus had been alive at this point in his earthly ministry. Uh, he, he had this, uh, he had this uh, uh, illness, this, 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 this uh, crippled nature, and uh, he, he knew nothing about mercy. It's interesting that Bethesda means house of mercy because this man knew nothing about mercy. Nobody said to him after all these years, hey, you've been here for a long time. You've kind of had some seniority. Let me, let me help get you into the pool first. Let, let, let me help you out a little bit. He knew nothing about mercy, and he's about to have an encounter with Jesus, and Jesus is about to do the miraculous. And we see a few things about this. I want you to notice a few characteristics uh, of Jesus through this. The first thing that I think we learn is about Jesus' comprehension, his comprehension. Notice how it says, and a certain man was there. A certain man was there. Now, the Bible already made it clear that there was a great multitude there. There was a lot of people there, but there was a certain man that Jesus had comprehension. He knew about this individual. He knew about this one uh, uh, individual situation. And there's so many people in the world today that are struggling and so many people in the world today that are hurting, but Jesus knows every single one. Now, a couple of years ago, I told you before how I ran into an NBA player one time in the airport. His name was Michael Red, and uh, we were talking uh, for a while, and uh, he told us this story about how when he was first in the NBA that, that he was playing against Michael Jordan for the first time. And he said, you know, I had watched Michael Jordan growing up for a long time and, and uh, idolized Michael Jordan. And he said, the first time I ever played against him, he said, Michael Jordan came down to the court, and uh, he went up to get a rebound, and he elbowed me in the stomach as hard as he could. And uh, Michael Red said, man, you know, I just got elbowed by Michael Jordan. And, uh, and uh, he, he told the story that when he ran back down the court, Michael Jordan said to Michael Red, he said, hey, sorry, Mike. He said, sorry about that. I, I didn't mean to hit you. Sorry, Mike. And uh, Michael Red said, he knows my name. <laughs> like, this is amazing. And uh, he didn't even care about getting elbowed because he, he knew his name. And I just want to encourage you today that I'm thankful that the Bible says, for God so loved the world. I'm thankful that the Bible says that Christ loves the church and he gave himself for it. But I'm thankful today that God knows my name and he knows my situation and he loves me individually. He knows a certain man was there. This was an individual situation. He knew that there was a certain man there. Notice the next verse. It says this. When Jesus saw him and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he said unto him, wilt thou be made whole? And so Jesus saw this man, and he already knew. Can I tell you this morning? He already knows. He already knows your struggle. He already knows what you're worried about. He already knows what's going to happen tomorrow. He, he knows everything uh, about you. The Bible says that his eye is on the sparrow, and if his eye is on the sparrow, then certainly his eye is on your struggle. He already knew this is his, his comprehension, and so we learn that, that, that Jesus knows it all. Psalm 139, verse 2 and 4, that thou knowest my downsitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compass my path and my lying down. Thou art acquainted with all my ways, for there is not a word in my tongue, but, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. He is all-knowing. He is omniscient. Psalm 147, verse number 5, great is our Lord and of great power. His understanding is infinite. He knows it all, so we learn about his comprehension, but also we learn about his concern, because at the end of verse number six, he asks this question, wilt thou be made whole? Now, is not that an interesting question to ask someone that's been sick, crippled for 38 years? You know, it's like if I went to the hospital this afternoon, and I went and found someone that had an illness for 38 years, and I walked in and said, hey, I'm a pastor in Fontana, and I just wanted to ask you a question. Do you want to get better? Like, yes, I think would be the answer, right? Why would Jesus come to this man who's been sick for 38 years, had been crippled for 38 years, and he says, wilt thou be made whole? But I think Jesus is bringing to the surface a deeper issue. 
Because no doubt this man that had been at Bethesda and had this uh, paralyzed state for 38 years, no doubt someone had been taking care of him, bringing him food in order to survive. He couldn't move. Somehow he was getting it. Someone was, was helping him. And if he were to be healed, if he were to be made better, he would be open to a whole new world of responsibility. He would now have to go find a place to live. He'd have to get a job. He'd have to get his own food. Uh, and maybe he didn't want that responsibility. You know, some people are very comfortable in their struggle. Some people are so accustomed to their struggle that they actually become apathetic in their struggle and they don't even care anymore. That they've struggled for so long and they've endured a battle for so long that they just gave up even trying. And Jesus says, do you want to get better? I know that you've been struggling for a long time, but are you comfortable in that struggle or do you want to see something radically uh, miraculous happen in your life? Do you want to get, he, he asked this, he asked this concern, this, this question, do you want to be made whole? Now notice how the man responds in verse 7. The impotent man answered him, saying, Sir, I have no man. And so he, he did desire to be healed, but he just didn't have the means. He didn't have a friend. He said, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool. But when I'm coming, another step down before me. And so he's kind of complaining. And he's like, I'd like to be healed. Wouldn't it be nice? But every time that water starts to stir a little bit, uh, I can't. Nobody will help me. I have no man. And nobody's going to help me. And it's interesting because uh, he needed a person. Uh, to, uh, he needed a friend to bring about his healing, to, to, to help him get to the point of healing. And it's interesting because in Luke chapter number five, we also meet a crippled man. Uh, John chapter five, we meet a crippled man. Luke chapter five, there's a crippled man. And there's one big difference. The man in Luke chapter five that was healed by Jesus, he was brought to Jesus on a mat by four friends. He had four friends that, that cared about him enough to get him to Jesus. This man didn't have a man. I want to tell you that there are people in your neighborhood, there are people in your life that need you to be the one to bring them to Jesus, you to, bring, to invite them and to say, hey, uh, come to church with me, or hey, uh, let me pray for you, and to be the one to point them into the right direction. He said, I don't have a man. I don't have anybody. When the pool is troubled, uh, someone is going to go down before me every single time. And so he kind of complains and offers this excuse. But then we see not only... Jesus' comprehension and then his concern, but now we see his command in verse number eight. Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. And so this is a threefold instruction. He says, Rise, I want you to get up, take up thy bed, and walk. Now, for someone that has been crippled for 38 years, this makes no sense at all. What do you mean, rise, take up thy bed and walk? I haven't moved in 38. What, what, are you, what are you talking about? This absolutely made no sense to him. But I want you to hear me. It was the command that triggered the cure. It, it was the command that brought about the cure. And so often we want to see God do the impossible, but we first don't submit to the instruction. He says, you want to see me do the miraculous? First obey the mandate. See, we all want the miraculous, but do we want the mandate? Do, do we want to obey God's instruction? He says, hey, hey, get up and walk. And I want to tell you that God is going to ask you to do some things that make no sense. You're going to read the word of God and say, what? I'm really supposed to do that in this day and age in 2018? I'm supposed to live like that? But I, tell, I want to tell you this morning, if you submit to the instruction, God will release the impossible. God will do the miraculous in your life, but it starts by saying, okay, this doesn't make any sense, but I'm going to submit to your will, God. I'm going to do whatever you want me to do so that I can see the miraculous in my life. It is the heart of Jesus to do the miraculous. God wants to work in your situation. He wants to bring about a miracle. Now, it's not always going to look like you thought it was going to look. It's not always going to be the miracle that you thought it would be, but it is his heart to do the miraculous in your life. But you first have to listen to his instructions found in his word. And so he says, uh, rise, take up thy bed and walk. That's the command. But now let's see the cure, verse number nine. And immediately 
Immediately the man was made whole. I love it when Jesus does something immediately like this. There was no time for rehabilitation. There was no time for physical therapy. It was not a slow progress. It was immediately he was made whole. He took up his bed and he walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. And I just want to remind you today, if you're struggling with maybe an illness, with a disease, with some sort of sickness, please hear me, that Jesus is Lord over sickness. He is sovereign over your health. He is in control of your physical nature. He is in control of your body. And sometimes the devil wants to jump on your back and say, you're never going to get over this. You're never going to be able to survive through this. You're never going to be able to have strength through this. And just know that our God can do the miraculous. He can do the impossible. And he is Lord over sickness. And immediately the man was made whole. And so we see, we see God do the impossible. Why? That's his heart. Don't you love that about the heart of Jesus? He wants to work in your life. He wants to do the miraculous. He wants to do the impossible. He wants to show up and say, wow, how did that happen? It was Jesus. Why? He gets the glory. And so God, that's his heart. He wants to do the miraculous. He wants to be near those that suffer. And there's one more thought this morning. Number three, the third characteristic we learn about the heart of Jesus today is this. The heart of Jesus is to provide salvation. And as we examine this final truth today, there are really three things that we need to understand that are taking place in the context of this story. First, we see there is confusion about the Sabbath. At the end of verse number nine, it says, and on the same day was the Sabbath. And if you've studied scripture, been around church, been around the Bible, you know that this was a no-no to do anything on the Sabbath. You know, they were going to, the Pharisees and the religious leaders were going to get on to you if you did anything on the Sabbath. Verse number 10, the Jews therefore said unto him that was cured, It is the Sabbath day. It is not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. And so, you know, of course, just like with the blind man a couple weeks ago, this should have been a cause for celebration. He can now walk. This is amazing. But instead of being happy for him, they say, hey, it's the Sabbath day. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath day. Uh, What are you doing this for? Please explain yourself. Jeremiah 17, 21 says this, Thus saith the Lord, take heed to yourselves and bear no burden on the Sabbath day, nor bring it to the gates of Jerusalem. And so this was the instruction to to bear no burden on the Sabbath day. But in context, what that's talking about is commerce. It's talking about the regular trade and your job and your routine and your schedule. And you were supposed to take a break from the regular commerce, the regular flow of your business and your job. You were supposed to take a break from that and enjoy a day of rest. But see what the overly religious people did was they took something that was supposed to be an, an enjoyed blessing and they enforced it to be a burden. And they made it so complicated and so confusing that you couldn't do anything on the Sabbath. And any, anything that could be labeled work, they, they would get on to you and they would, they would in fact stone you. They took this very seriously. They would kill you if you violated the Sabbath. And so this was a scary and dangerous situation for this man that, that had just been healed. Jesus uh, said in Mark 2.27, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. See, Jesus came and he is Lord of the Sabbath. He fulfilled uh, the Sabbath. And Jesus did this miracle on purpose to teach the religious leaders about this. Notice the next verse, verse number 11. And he answered them, he that made me whole, the same said unto me, take up thy bed and walk. He said, you know, I don't really know who it was. I don't know what that guy's name is, but whoever healed me, that's the same guy that told me to do it. And he's basically saying, you know what? Don't get mad at me. It was that guy that told me to do it. Go, go and find him. And so there was this confusion uh, that was taking place about the Sabbath. Notice verse number 12. And they asked him, what man is uh, which said unto thee, take up thy bed and walk? Next verse. And he that was healed wist not know who it was. He, he didn't know who it was. He, he, he said, I don't know who that is. For Jesus had conveyed himself away 
a multitude being in that place. And so I want you to see this. It seems to be the case that this miracle was done in the absence of faith. It wasn't because this man had such great faith that Jesus healed him. He didn't even know who he was. I, I don't know who that, that guy is. And so uh, this was done in the, in the absence of faith. And so why did Jesus heal this man? Because he's full of compassion. Because he loved him. We're going to see this story unfold. And so we see uh, the confusion about the Sabbath. But I want you to see now a caution about sin. Okay, if you're still with me, would you say amen? And so we see this confusion about the Sabbath. And then there was this caution now about sin. Notice the next verse, verse 14. Afterward, Jesus findeth him in the temple. Now, there would have been thousands of people at the temple. Thousands, but Jesus finds him and said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole. You have physical healing. Sin no more, lest the worst thing come unto thee. You have physical healing now, but go and sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. Now, I imagine that crippled man that was healed is thinking, what are you talking about? What's worse than 38 years of being crippled? You don't know about me. You don't know my struggle. You don't know my life. You don't know what I've gone through. You show up to Bethesda one day and tell me go and sin no more and the worst thing is going to happen to me. You don't know me. What's 38 years? What's worse than 38 years of being crippled? An eternity separated from God in a terrible place called hell. He says, I'm telling you, you have physical healing now, but go and sin no more, lest the worst thing come unto thee. Now, this is where the story might take you for surprise. Watch what happens next, verse 15. The man departed, and he told the Jews that it was Jesus which had made him whole. Now, why did he do that? He knew that the religious leaders wanted to kill Jesus. He knew that they weren't very happy. And so in order to protect himself, he goes and he rats out Jesus. He says, oh yeah, hey, that guy that you're really mad about that you want to kill, I found out his name at the temple. His name is Jesus. And he snitches on Jesus. Come on, snitches get stitches. Why would he do that? He goes and he, and he rats him out. He was more worried about criticism from the crowd than his calling from Christ. He was more worried about what people might think. And I don't want to get in trouble for violating the Sabbath. They're not going to stone me. I, I have legs that work now. I'm going to enjoy my life. I'm not going to let uh, this man hold me back. And he rejected Jesus. And Jesus knew it all along, but he still healed him. Why? Because he loved him. And he had compassion. Jesus came unto his own, and his own received him not. See, we learn about the heart of Jesus this morning that God loves us so much and he wants to provide salvation for us. He wants to do the miraculous in our lives. He loves us that much even when he knows we're going to reject him. Even when he knew that we wouldn't accept him, he, God still sent his son to die in our place. And so he says, hey, go and sin no more. He was trying to warn him. See, one thing that we all have in common this morning is sin. None of us are perfect people. Kelly said it. If you're perfect, you got to get out, right? Romans 3.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. The wages, the payment of sin is death. Because we've sinned, there is a price that needs to be paid. For the wages, the payment of sin is death. And it's not even just talking about a one-time death. It's talking about an eternal separation from God. We've all sinned. There's a price that needs to be paid. But I love what Romans 5.8 says, but God commendeth his love toward us, even when we were sinners, even when we sinned, even when we were imperfect and made mistakes, it says Christ died for us. He paid the price that we couldn't pay. 
And so Jesus was trying to tell this man, hey, go and sin no more. He was trying to say, hey, there's something far more important than a physical healing. There's something far more important than the material. It's the spiritual. It's eternity. And so there was this confusion about the Sabbath. There was a caution about sin. But I want to close with this thought. Then there was clarity about the Savior. Notice what happens next in verse 16. And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus. The man knew that they wanted to persecute Jesus. He knew that was what was going to happen. And they sought to slay him. Now they're going to try to kill Jesus. Because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. Verse 17. But Jesus answered them, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. And I love this statement so much. There's so much power in this statement. He says, you know what? You're so worried about working on the Sabbath day and violating the Sabbath day because of work. Let me just tell you something. My father and I, his son, we're always working. (laughs) It doesn't matter if it's the Sabbath. It doesn't matter if it's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. We're always working. I'm always working because I'm God. Can I tell you this morning that God never stops being God? And if you are struggling, let me just tell you something. God is working. If you are worrying, God is working. If you are waiting, God is working because he never stops working in your life. He says, we're always working. I'm always working. Then he says this, verse 18. He provides some clarity here. Therefore, the Jews sought the more to kill him. They're like, ah, can't believe he said that. Why were they so mad? Because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but now he took it a step further, but said that God was his father. What does that mean in context? Making himself equal with God. And that was the real issue. Jesus said, listen to me. I am God. You're looking, I'm the son of God. He was claiming to be God. And we have to understand this morning, Jesus was not just a good teacher, not just a good prophet. He is who he says he is. He's the son of God. I love what C.S. Lewis said. I want to read this quickly today. C.S. Lewis said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a, a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You cannot. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and, and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with the patronizing nonsense about his uh, being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us he did not intend to. We can't just say, yeah, Jesus seems nice and he seemed like he said some good things and love your neighbor, you know, yeah, that that was a good thing. Jesus is God. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. Salvation is provided only through God's Son. His name is Jesus. See, it's his very heart to provide salvation. We have the problem of sin, but Jesus paid the price on the cross so that we might have a home in heaven forever. I want to read one more verse and we'll be done today. You got one more verse in you? Verse 24 in our text. We're going to skip ahead. Jesus began to talk. I believe we have this verse, John 5, verse number 24. It's a good thing we still have our our, uh, actual Bible say, because if a screen doesn't work, we can just look at it, right? Uh, It says this. If you have a Bible open on your phone or something, it says this in, in, in John 5, 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word, Jesus kind of, took this opportunity as as an occasion to teach them. He said, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that has sent me hath everlasting life. He said, if you believe, the result is 
everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation. Anybody thankful that through Jesus we can avoid condemnation? He says you're going to avoid that, but is passed from death unto life. Passed from death unto life. I want to tell you today that in Jesus there is salvation, and in Jesus alone there is salvation. It's his heart to provide salvation. And if you're, if you're not sure today, I would say that today can be the greatest day of your life. You can get it settled forever. The Bible says, behold, today is the day of salvation. You can say, you know what? I'm not going to trust myself any longer. I'm not going to trust religion. I'm not going to trust in some sort of person. No, I'm going to trust in the God of the universe, in God's Son. His name is Jesus, and it's his heart to provide salvation for you. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning. Thanks again for listening today. If this message was an encouragement to you, let us know. You can email us at hello at rockhill.church and keep up with all the latest news at rockhill.church or on Instagram at rockhillchurch.